0: Jeffrey Martin is a folk singer and I I believe a lyrical genius. He, in 2014, wrote a song about the ruinous nature of the human condition and did so after a very serious and debilitating bout of depression. And it was so affecting to me that I have to read some of it to you because it relates so directly uh, to our reading from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, particularly the second chapter, And these uh, are some of the lyrics. I read a story about a coal fire that burned for 80 miles underground, under rivers and across the state line, without a flame, without a sound. It burned a building and some fence posts when it came up from the dirt into the sky. And when they interviewed the townsfolk, they all said that hell was on the rise. And now I feel that fire creeping. Everywhere I go always burns down. Everyone I love is trying to figure me out, and everything I know is on fire underground. As always, I begin a sermon with shiny optimism. Classic (laughs) Ethan, yes. You know, Paul does begin optimistically. He begins his letter to the Ephesians in a rather giddy way. He's profoundly excited and prayerful and joyful about the descent of God in the flesh. I mean, and what Jesus Christ has achieved for all of us. He's caught up in it. Um, But after a while, that is after chapter one, he begins to remind us of why we needed such an exalted figure in the first place, why we needed somebody to be a conquering hero. Uh, I have to engage with you tonight in some spiritual spelunking. We have to go into the caves. We have to go into the mines that are on fire into the burning caverns. And so I'd like to focus tonight on the most dismal portion of our reading. We'll get to the really nice portion next week. Uh, but I'm going to focus on verses one through three, in which Paul takes us into the um, burning coal mine of the human condition. And he offers us uh, three uh, unflattering descriptors there, uh, descriptors of the whole human race and uh, ones that I would rather avoid, but you know, truth be told, Christianity offers us all a lot of unwelcomed wisdom, but I find in life, and I keep discovering it, and rediscovering it, that whenever I accept in my own existential self unwelcomed wisdom, I always become more healed. And so I'm inviting you not to be defensive tonight. I'm really inviting you not to be defensive when you hear Paul uh, because he's not trying to hurt you, actually. Uh, He's not trying to bully you. He's not trying to create a shame spiral in your life. Instead, he's trying to give you the key that unlocks the door to liberation. So uh, let's dig into the uh, material. The first uh, rather insulting bit of uh, material that St. Paul gives to us is that he calls us the walking dead. That's what he calls us, the walking dead. And that is not a reference to that very interesting show that I've never seen on AMC. Never seen how it's really great. Never seen it. Um, But this is verse uh, verse 1. So take up your bulletin, if you would, and follow along with me. He says about us, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, what does Paul mean by this language? You were dead. Well, he's obviously not talking about physical death, uh, because he's talking about people that walk and trespass and sin. And you can't do a whole lot of those three things if you are, in fact, dead. Uh, Instead, he's not speaking about physical death, but uh, an existential or spiritual death. You know, there's Edenic memory in the soul, I swear, that that used to be bonded, that used to have a solid uh, conscious contact with heaven, the you that was formed entirely as a a reflective mechanism of the transcendent, the you that was fashioned by God and never found yourself having a break with that supra personality of God, that that portion of us is dead. That spiritual bond is gone, that we no longer have that right relationship with our maker. Not anymore. And that is not Paul's unique pessimism. It's not his invention that that relationship has been devastated and that we are spiritually dead. That goes back to Genesis. That goes back to what happens whenever the the dark fruit was consumed, right? That whenever human beings were warned not to consume the fruit of the forbidden tree, they were told, for on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. Well, of course, they don't, right? Isn't that interesting? Um, They did eat of it, and then they didn't die. Now, the clock starts ticking, right? But they don't die that day. Not physically. But there was an aspect of self, a most important aspect of self that died that day. Something was eradicated in the creation that day. And our spiritual selves that only exist as animate whenever they have a bond with God, that portion of us died. That is our condition, that we have a spiritually dead self that eventually catches up to our physical selves, and it kills that too. That's sort of the biblical portrayal of us as the walking dead. And so that is quite a verdict, that the natural state of things is death, that we are born into a spiritual death. Now, I want you to note just for, ex- just, just for what it's worth about how alarmingly stark Paul's language is here. And he mentions it twice, uh, once in verse 1 and then once in verse 5, that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, notice the word dead. Uh, he doesn't say defeated. He doesn't say injured. He doesn't say hurt. He doesn't say maimed. He doesn't say sick. He doesn't say knocked out. He says dead. And just to be, you know, blunt, dead things have very few options. I mean, you know, uh, a dead mechanic probably can't fix your car. A dead professor probably can't teach you very much. Uh, A dead lawyer can't defend you in court. Dead things have few options and therefore what has died needs more than help, needs more than medicine. Something that has died needs resurrection. Something that has died needs a a radicalized and supernaturalistic intervention from the outside, or else the dead cannot help themselves. That's the situation. Paul puts it that starkly and that bleakly. Now, uh, I've realized through the years that some Christians are uncomfortable with Paul's language of deadness because it pretty clearly implies that we cannot do anything to fix our situation. And they're quick to point out, as they try to soften Paul's implications, that Paul also employs other descriptors to explain the human condition, like enslavement, like weakness, and so forth. And it is quite true, quite true, that Paul describes the human condition in a myriad of ways. Uh, He employs more images than just death. But while Paul might mean more than death in describing our human condition, he certainly doesn't mean less than death. You can't eradicate it just because you don't like it, right? That's what Thomas Jefferson does with the Bible. But we don't want to do that here, Um, uh, right? Right, Thank you. You understand. Yeah, somebody gets it, yeah. Um, So I, I want to say just that things really are that dire and that drastic. And by the way, most of the time in life, we're not conscious of it. We're not conscious of that that the quality of deadness I think if we were all the time it would drive us completely mad but there are moments when a dark revelation occurs to you and occurs to me when you have tried everything you could possibly try to cure some situation you have had every positive conversation you could ever have you read every book you should read you went to every shrink you could think of you took every med that you could and it didn't fix the situation you did everything you could but in terms of sort of establishing a fruitful spiritually engaged manner of life that would hopefully cure something it didn't work because you used all your resources but you but you ended up throwing away your oars forever because it wasn't working it wasn't working because you realized that there was a deadness that you could not escape there was an ineptitude within you that was as foundational as you are and you couldn't proceed any further that is a glimpse into the disastrous uh, nature of the human condition that we have inherited and so if you've ever had that reckoning i cannot fix this marriage i cannot get my son off of drugs i cannot relate to my parents in a healthy way i cannot influence my institution then you understand something something of the deadness of the human condition so that's something about the walking dead and then he gets more insulting are you ready more insulting he calls, calls us followers of satan please read with me uh, <laughs> this is verse two he mentions it twice following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Uh, So he says that we follow the course of the world. And then then he says we follow the, the dark prince, right? The dark spirit of the world. Um, and, and that's because human beings were made to follow things. We were made for mimicry. We were made for personality mirroring. It's just what we do. Originally, according to the, uh, the brilliant design of heaven, we were meant to, as image bearers, reflect the heavens. We were meant to reflect something of the character and some of the nature of the eternal father. But when the fall occurs, the mimicry does not stop. We just change the one we're mimicking. Uh, This is what Romans 1 is all about. Romans 1 is a kind of a veiled reinterpretation of Genesis chapter 3 in the fall narrative, where where Romans 1, Paul writes that we ended up worshiping the creature rather than the creator. That's a veiled reference to the the, the serpentine elements of of the fall narrative. We ended up worshiping or adoring or seeking to mimic and mirror that which was baser. Uh, And so uh, we have become, according to St. Paul's, apprentices of the devil. That's what he's saying, apprentices of the devil. And how is that evidenced? How is it evidenced? He says that we live by our passions and our desires. I preached about this a few months ago, that most people in our day and age think that you ought to follow your passions and desires. I think only three people in the ancient world ever thought that. Most of them said, absolutely not. Like if you want to live a life of complete destruction, follow your passions. Because that's what will happen. In fact, they often liken the passions to a hydra that is a multi-headed dragon that is yanking the body of the dragon in all sorts of contorted ways. Perhaps why the satanic figure, as, uh, as he is represented in the scripture, is represented as a dragon or a snake or a leviathan, some sort of untamed beast. Well, that's the satanic figure in the scripture. He is the personification of the anti-God impulse that is not governed by holiness, not governed by love, but is governed only by self-interest and untamed passion. Um, And he wants to replicate his nature just as God wishes to replicate his. He wants to create a kingdom of dragons, a kingdom of scorpions, a kingdom of snakes. And he seeks too to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in hell. And so the true sinful nature of the apprentice of Satan um, is is evidenced whenever we are governed by our passions. And it's interesting here, I yet again remind you, sin does not begin in behavior, does not begin in action. Sin begins in attitudes, in drives, in impulses, in the things that are too deep for words, and it eventually leaks out in activity. I also want to remind you, based on this passage, that according to st paul true satanism is not only found in like black cloaks and pentagrams and blood rituals no it's found when the passions take over that's satanism when mothers despise their children and when husbands resent their wives and when kids mock continually their parents and when employees malign their employers And when we have endless bouts of bad romances where we damage people and go to sleep just fine afterwards. That's Satanism, according to St. Paul. That's the mark of being an apprentice of dark power. So, something about the walking dead, something about being followers of Satan, but don't worry, it gets better. Point three. Isn't this an upper sermon? Uh, Children of wrath. Children of wrath. There it is. All right. Paul writes, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what we were by nature. Now, by nature doesn't mean original design. It means fallen nature. According to fallen nature, uh, we are, notice what he says, not children of God, I wish he would have said that, but we are children of wrath. Now, what is wrath? God's wrath is his fairness displayed without grace. It's fairness without grace or justice, where our lives are weighed and found wanting and we are treated accordingly. Now, I did see a (laughs) commercial. I saw a commercial, you know, it's one of those things where, as an Anglican, you know, we don't believe in the papal office, but I have so much respect for various Christian traditions that I just wish the Pope would never tweet, um, right? It sort of denigrates the office that I don't even believe in. I, I wish he wouldn't tweet, and I wish he wouldn't make commercials, but he does both. And um, and there was a commercial that the Pope did, I think, to be a sweetheart. I think he was trying to be nice, um, but he gathered different religious traditions together. There was a Muslim guy and a Buddhist lady and a, and a rabbi, and a Catholic priest. And they were all together, like, hanging out. And, and every one of them brought, like, a religious implement to share with the others. And so the Catholic priest brought, like, baby Jesus, and the, uh, the Buddhist brought a statue of, of Siddhartha, and the Islamic gentleman brought a prayer rope, and then the um, rabbi brought a menorah. And they all said, I believe in God. I believe in God. I believe in God. And that's nice. And then they did something more. Uh, they said, I believe in love. And the other said, I believe in love. I believe in love. And it was, yeah, they did. And then, but then, but then the Pope shows up and, and, and he says, see, we're all children of God. We're all children of God. And I, I wanted to say, like, I haven't written them yet, but I wanted to, I wanted to say like, yeah, no, like, no, like that's actually not what scripture teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches at all, actually. Now, it is quite true that every human being that you've ever met is made in God's image and likeness, and therefore worthy of our respect. And when we disrespect the image of God, we're doing something really sacrilegious and unholy. But St. Paul seems to think and communicates with great clarity about the fact that we are made children of God by grace. It's forgiveness that makes family that we are brought into God's family at the cross as we yield to Jesus, who makes us into family. We become children of God. We receive the spirit of adoption, to quote St. Paul. But we are made God's children, not just image bearers, but God's children through grace. Because originally we were not children of God, we were children of wrath. We had to be made children of God. That's why Jesus dies. And also he says something uh, that I think we need to hear. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Like the rest of mankind. You know, I think our natural impulse in our fallen state is to think the opposite. We tend to think that everybody's better than us or most people are probably worse. Um, And very often, especially in times of great strain, we like to find the bad guys. Who's doing it wrong? And how, how do I blast them accordingly to prove my own legitimacy and how my opinions ultimately hold weight and value? And I find that we can become quite apocalyptic in our judgment of people, deciding who is condemnable. And we see it all over the place, don't we? People that hold different political opinions than we do, people who uh, have a different philosophy of life, people who have a different approach to COVID. We can assign horrific motives to people just because they haven't taken exactly the right track as we have acting like we are the judge and jury what are we doing it reminds me of uh uh, van helsing's comment at the end of bram stoker's dracula where he says we've all become god's madmen but like the rest of mankind like the rest of mankind remember saint paul said that you're actually not better than other people you're not better we're all the same like deep down we're all devastated we are all dead in our sins and trespasses Without Christ, we become followers of our darkest appetites. We're all the same. We are no better than anybody else. And so, friends, um, this is Christian anthropology. This is our understanding of fallenness. To quote Jeffrey Martin, Everywhere I go always burns down, and everything I know is on fire underground. Have a great week. Amen. No, I'm 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 kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. I want us to hear this though, because I think it's important to note that Paul does not say what our culture often says to us. He does not say that we are by nature good or autonomous or free or virtuous or noble or blank slates. Now, does this mean that Paul thinks we're only bad all the time? Well, of course not. He still knows we're made in the image and likeness of God and that hasn't been entirely besmirched. It's just that every aspect of that image, from our psychology to our emotions to our thought life to our decision-making capacities, they're all damaged. Damaged beyond our ability to repair. And so Paul is taking us into this coal mine, not to hurt us, but he wants to diagnose something that can be cured and has been cured in the sin-absolving, sin-annihilating Christ. So let's talk about you, the underground you, for just a minute. Let's engage in some spelunking with St. Paul. I want to ask you three questions. Here's the first one. Can we admit that there is, in fact, a coal fire? That we are far more troubled than we care to admit. That is, that your rector is worse than you think he is. And you are worse than I think you are. I don't say that as an insult. I just say that based on St. Paul's words. You know, from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a profoundly helpful section regarding step one which has to do with admitting powerlessness. And this is what it says in the chapter. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Now, who cares to admit this kind of defeat? Practically no one, of course, unless they're forced to. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It is awful to admit that only an act of providence can remove our addiction from us. But upon entering Alcoholics Anonymous, we soon take another view of absolute humiliation. We begin to perceive that only through utter defeat are we able to take our first steps toward liberation and strength. Our admissions of powerlessness finally turn out to be the firm bedrock upon which a happy and purposeful life may be built. Now, there's genius in that that comes right from St. Paul, whether the author of the big book of AA knew it or not. And here's the genius, and it's reflected in you. You know, when you come to me, some of you have come to me in a place of complete personal devastation, and uh, and you think that I'm going to shame you or something, but I'm above it? What is that? Do you know how courageous I think you are when you come to me in those places, when you admit that there's a crisis that's bigger than you? And you think that, you know, you're at the end of your rope, and there's nothing you can do, and the lights are all going out in Georgia, and this is it for you. And and it's caused you to come undone. But I've done this thing for a few years now. You know, like I've been a minister, it feels like forever, but for 15 years. And here's what I've seen. God's office exists at the end of your rope. God's office is when all the lights go out. That's when the light begins to come back. It's actually the beginning of your new Genesis, your Renaissance. Whenever you discover that you're in out of your depth, when you have exerted all of your power and you have none left. That's the place where God lives. That's the place where Jesus is. And that's the place that's going to open up to you. It's in weakness that we become strong. That's, I think, Paul's biggest personal lesson in life that he learns. is He used to think it was all about his power. It took him endless defeat to realize it was in his weakness that he was strong. And so, can we admit that there's a coal fire? Second, can we admit that we cannot fix the coal fire? You know, most people admit there's some sort of crisis within, but they find a messiah who is too subtle for the crisis. They, they find the wrong cure. They think the cure is education, or an election, or self-acceptance, or getting your dad to like you, or developing better habits, or taking self-esteem classes, We all did that in the 1990s, right? And our kids all still went to prison. Um, (laughs) Or maybe the answer is to try psychedelics, you know, psilocybin, that's the answer. Or to starve your body, or to numb out on Vicodin, or to trade your shrink for a better shrink. But we always have a new regimen, a new plan about how we're going to fix this thing. But I think we should become more pessimistic regarding some of those plans. I remember what uh, Hannah Arden, the Jewish polemicist, uh, wrote. She was fascinated by St. Paul uh, and his pessimism. And she writes this, Paul rightly taught, That the human capacity and the law which they hoped would constrain it are both impotent, not because of something outside us that prevents our wills from functioning and succeeding, but because our divided wills enslave themselves. That we are at war with ourselves and therefore we need something beyond ourselves and beyond our energies, beyond our ideas, beyond our ingenuities. We don't need tools. We don't need help. We need resurrection. We need to be saved. And we need something that only God can do. Only God can do. Can we admit that we cannot fix the crisis? You know, whenever you end up in that place, I cannot fix this marriage. I cannot fix my son. I cannot fix my habit. I cannot fix my addiction. I cannot fix my resentment. You are in the beginning stages of new ability. Okay, last question. Can we admit that God has definitively dealt with the coal fire? Let's end with a little gospel. We got we to raise this thing up, right? Because we can't go home tonight in clinical depression. So verse four, please take up your bulletin. I want you to read verses four and five out loud with me in unison let's get liturgical are you ready verse four but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved you're so good you read it like pentecostals i'm so proud of you but here's the thing a little story Um, when I was in the beginning of the ordination process, and friends, my ordination process began when I was 19, which is crazy, Um, but Bishop Duncan, who was a very imposing figure at the time, at least to me, uh, sat me down to get to know me. And other than, hello, how are you, here is some coffee, he offered me a very invasive question in our first meeting. One of the first questions he asked me, which was this, Ethan, what's the worst thing you've ever done? (laughs) Now, I had two thoughts that ran through my head. My entire ecclesiastical future hinges upon this meeting. <laughs> Second thought, how do I lie to the bishop in such a way that I admit something sort of damning but not too damning? Okay, but, um, but because I think the Spirit gave me a little bit of nobility, I actually told him the truth, and I said, this is it. Um, now, I want you to do an exercise with me bear with me, Um, I'm inviting you to please close your eyes for a minute. And I'm going to ask you the same question that Bob Duncan asked me. What is, in fact, the worst thing that you have ever done? If you were in a safe place where you could be honest, what would you say? And how old were you? And who was with you? And what did you say at that time or do? And how did you feel after it was all over? Now open your eyes. I want to tell you the same thing that he told me. That person that you just saw in your mind's eye is the you that is loved by God. There is no other nobler or better version of you than you. It is you that God loves. Not some potential person, not an improved person, but the only you that you are. And this is the gospel message to us, that love breaks into hell. Love breaks down into the coal fires. Love doesn't ignore the depths. Love dives in. I find that for long-term problems, you know, there is no quick fix. But the the only fix that I've discovered for the inner coal fire is long-term companionate love. Long-term companionate love, where God says, you, you belong to me, I belong to you, and You don't have to do this alone, and you'll be all right, and we'll get you through. God is in this for the long haul. This same love turns the walking dead into living saints, and followers of Satan into disciples of Christ, and children of wrath into children of God. This is our story. This is our song. Amen.